exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Barry, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. Tonight on the show, we talked to best-selling author Maggie Seabotter about her new book, Raven Boys. Hear music courtesy of Ron Bretz and, the, and Stan Budzinski of the Stan Budzinski and the Third Degree Band. And we get the lowdown on Korean pop sensation Psy from our K-pop expert, Elise Yoon. But first, a study about literature in and the brain. Uh, when I told my parents I was going to study arts and humanities, they were completely supportive, although I'm sure in the back of their minds they were kind of confused. Uh, well, worry no more, parents. A recent study suggests that liberal arts exercises the brain in a critical way. Today, we welcome Natalie Phillips, an MSU assistant professor of English, who conducted a study along with a team of researchers uh, to to look at liber- to look at uh, literature in the brain. Uh, so, welcome to Impact Exposure. Thanks so much. Um, so, first of all, yeah, like tell me about this study and how it, how you kind of quantified and made it all work. There, there's a lot of kind of different components going on here. Sure. So there's there's also a little bit of a funny bit, which is that um, this is all sort of a lot of the attention to this is catching us at a really sort of comic moment. So we are doing this interdisciplinary brain scan, right? I'm in literature and working with neuroscientists and linguists and people who work in MR physics. Um, and we came together to design this study on people reading Jane Austen. Um, and we were interested in two different things, um, how people read when they are reading for close literary analysis, in other words, what we do in the literary classroom, what we teach English <laughs> majors, what what sort of core skills of critical thinking in uh, liberal arts curriculum, as compared to pleasure reading. Um, and so we actually asked uh, students, particularly PhDs in English or literary studies, um, to read this novel in these two different ways uh, in the brain scanner and uh, collected all sorts of uh, data. What, we, what the brain scan actually shows you is blood flow to different regions of the brain, um, which is a measure of activity uh, because neurons, when they fire, need oxygen and blood flow goes to those regions. And so what our, story, what our study is seeking to explore is sort of the larger value of, of literary training as well as the value of pleasure reading. So when what did you guys find when you're looking at, at where the blood flow is going in the brain? What parts of the brain are, are active um, with these two different types of reading? And this is where I have to sort of um, laugh at the at the moment of the study. So we're at this early stage. Um, we just finished uh, the pilot this summer. We finished, um, we actually just finished running all of our subjects. So we're right in the middle of the data analysis. So I can't, as a scientist, also as a literary scholar, say absolutely what we've seen. Um, but I can say um, that we've had a number of big surprises so far. And what is holding across many of our subjects so far um, is that 
Though you really might have expected to see just sort of pleasure reading centers activating for the more relaxed style of reading and then regions associated with work, attention, and cognitive load at work for literary analysis, what we actually found was something else entirely. Um, and what took us by surprise is how much the whole brain um, actually was activating or global sort of regions across the brain were activating um, in response to this close literary analysis um, and in regions far beyond those associated with attention or just working hard in general. And if this actually holds across subjects as we're sort of doing all this data analysis, it'll suggest that it's not only the books we read, but the act of sort of thinking rigorously about them as we do that's a value, sort of exercising the brain in critical ways. So for uh, a liberal arts major like me, this is, <laughs> this is kind of a, a defense that shows that the brain is working in in a different in a different way than just beyond reading, um, can you expand upon that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, I do see this starting to take off in this direction. And I, I, I want to say, you know, that um, in many ways, this is a sort of defense of the. the scientific American mind with these two levels, um, all these things. But I think what we can say is that um, regardless, you know, people have talked for a long time about the value of the humanities, about reading difficult things and tough old texts um, as a way of developing critical thought. And I think this work is suggesting that literary study definitely activates the brain, right? And not just attention, but a whole lot more. Um, but that's not all. And this is where I get really excited. And this is, again, early results. But it's also suggesting that pleasure reading is key, too. Um, and those are activating sort of a, so far, sort of a separate set of regions that are actually engaging almost the entire brain um, on a different that's level. And so I think what that's telling me is that the goal really in the end is to maintain a kind of cognitive flexibility and the ability to switch back and forth. Um, and that's also the value that I think is of doing this kind of interdisciplinary work as well. So when you had people, you had them in an MRI machine reading, how did you, how do you kind of control or, or whether they're reading for pleasure or reading for analysis? How do you kind of differentiate um, that facet? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of different ways that we do this. Um, so the first way is that we choose our subjects very carefully. Um, and we did uh, work with, since the goal of the study was to investigate uh, the cognitive value of literary attention and pleasure reading, um, it was important to find a population of people that we knew could do both fairly reliably. Um, and comically, professors were out. Um, <laughs> many of us have forgotten completely how to read for pleasure. Um, Literary PhDs, however, we found were perfect. Um, people were still reading for pleasure reliably, and we brought together a group of almost 30 from Stanford, Berkeley, and San Jose State for the experiment and, and the pilot. Um, and then the other way we control for it um, is we actually have them write an essay at the end of the scan. So they come out of the scanner, they've read different sections uh, doing the close analysis, and we're able to actually look at the essay that they write um, and see whether or not that's matching up back with those sections. And that's another exciting piece for future study is that since we have the eye tracking as well, we can look at the passages uh, that they're actually noticing and quoting, see if that's matching up with how they're actually pausing and the different patterns of reading, um, and get a really sort of hopefully rich sense of how our attention shifting beyond this sort of close reading and and pleasure reading. And people are actually quoting sometimes from the text, which I was delighted by. I thought, I thought you know, if you're reading inside a loud scanner, I, I didn't expect people to come out quoting the material, but they yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in addition to kind of choosing people, you also had to choose a book. 
Um, talk about the book that you chose and why did you why did you land on that book? It's a really good question. <laughs> and so and it's a hard one in funny ways. Um, Austin is we so also similar it's it's similar to picking the the students in a way. Um, we needed a work of literature that could be read both for pleasure and for complex literary analysis, something you could imagine possibly picking up off the bookshelf and just reading, and in a literary classroom. And Jane Austen is one of the few classic authors that can fairly reliably uh, provide both. I'm also an 18th centuryist. Um, aside from doing this sort of wild work in literary neuroscience, I study 18th century history of ideas about distraction. Um, and so this means that I could also draw strongly on my field of knowledge. Um, so this was sort of how, how that went. Uh, Mansfield Park in particular, which is what we did for our study, mm-hmm. um, we worked on um, persuasion for our pilot, which was fun. But we really wanted to pick a study, um, pick Mansfield Park in particular, because it's really important to have people get a fresh reading of that work. If you're, as we all know, rereading changes our experience entirely. Um, And so (laughs) interestingly, Mansfield Park is the novel that people have have been least likely likely to to read. That is the first Jane Austen novel I read. So... Fascinating. Yeah. I'm a, I couldn't do the study. Um, anyway, so you you mentioned earlier doing more studies using different types of literature. Um, talk to me about that. What are, what are the future plans of this? Sure. I mean, there's there's a long way to go, and you know, I would I would love to do you know a, a more more works by Austin, but um, but I'd, I'd actually love to work to move to a modern modern example and do the same study on something like Toni Morris, Morrison's Beloved, or even and I'm just going to throw this out there, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, um, <laughs> because it's true that you know yes, it's good for our brains you know to <laughs> to read classic works, but that's that's not really what this, this study is about. It's about the ability to shift attention. And you can read all sorts of works this way. Um, we have a number of studies in progress. Um, sometimes I joke about needing to be cloned. Um, <laughs> but but basically, there's, there's one really, and they're all in very early stages, but there's one emerging here at MSU on uh, poetry reading and how we uh, have a sense of cognitive rhythm, um, comparing that to music. So how do we produce rhythm in our minds when there's not actually um, music presence? And so poetry is one of those cases. Um, another study on um, trauma narratives and an empathy, uh, drawing on some collaborations with Duke, pulling on uh, some stories they have actually from the Haiti lab, and um, looking at whether reading stories to help people relate to that actual trauma narrative can change sort of the empathy regions that are associated with engagement. And um, there's a final one in, that's really, really early stages um, that's emerging in collaboration with Stanford in Sweden, where we're looking at differences in distraction um, uh, when reading on an iPad or Kindle as opposed to a traditional book, um, and in particular for fiction. So we're thinking of some visual distractions, auditory distractions, maybe coffee shop noises, um, <laughs> things like that. But so it's been really exciting. I think there's a lot of it's, this work is in its really earliest stages. So it's exciting to see where it will go. And it's also really interesting because you've managed to bring together all these kind of different disciplines. You've got people working in neuroscience. You've got yourself who's English. Uh, talk about that experience of bringing it all together to, to come up with this really kind of interesting finding. Yeah. Um, I was joking. It's, it's been one of the hardest things I've done in my life. 
um, it's it's been, and I think for that reason, sort of unbelievably exciting. Um, uh, because I'm not just working on this uh, literary neuroscience study, right? I'm working on an 18th century book on the history of distraction. And so there's all of these moments where sort of scientific methodologies and my literary sort of methods are sort of crossing over and cross-pollinating. Um, and there's moments where they're really quite separate. Um, I've been really, really lucky in the people that I've been working with, close friends, um, really good collaborators. Um, and one of my, some of my favorite moments uh, come from sort of those, those exchange points. I have a favorite memory where a group of scientists and a group of literary scholars were sitting together. And all of a sudden, the literary scholars, really early on, the literary scholars got started to get really interested in, in experiment design and how to control the variables. And the scientists were sitting there thinking about Jane Austen's style. <laughs> and I, I just sort of had a moment where I paused and I, I thought, oh, my gosh, this this is <laughs> this is what interdisciplinary work should be. Yeah. Um, and other times, you know, it, 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 the What's interesting is the productive dissonance, mm-hmm. um, pushing neuroscience technologies to be able to handle the complexity of a literary novel has led us to use all sorts of different things like an fMRI compatible eye tracker just to handle the fact that this is a really you know difficult novel um, in order to standardize our our experiment um, and again I was lucky to be working with the Center for neurobiological imaging where they're actually teaching people so now I'm the one you know helping to acquire the brain scans and different slices and analyze the data which is something I never would have expected to be the one doing so well, I'm I'm looking Looking forward to seeing uh, future results on different studies, and uh, I'd like to thank you for coming on today. Great. Thank you so much for the time to do it. A pleasure. That was Natalie Phillips, an MSU assistant professor of English, whose recent study shed light on the debate over studying literature or majoring in the humanities. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. Welcome back to Impact Exposure. According to a recent poll by NBC, President Barack Obama has a 15-point advantage among female voters over Mitt Romney, while men favor Romney 6-8 to eight in the point lead. Uh, so to discuss how candidates are selling themselves differently to men and women and why men and women see the race so differently, we welcome gender expert, speaker, and author of Selling in a Skirt, Judy Hoverman. Welcome to Exposure. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be on your show, and I was loving listening to your last guest. 
Well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, a lot of interesting topics are, are going over here today. Uh, so in your work, you talk a lot about sales, in particular how sales, um, how, how to sell to women and how to be a seller as a woman. Um, so first, can you, how do you sell to a woman? Well, let's just talk about the beginning is that men and women communicate, they, they communicate differently. And people need to appreciate that fact that it's differences. That's all it is. Not one is better, not one is worse. It's just differences. So a couple of things I say will be generalizations because not, it doesn't hold true all the way around. But mm-hmm. women build relationships. They need to like the person for the sale to happen. And you can't ignore women as they're responsible for over 85% of all consumer purchases. Men are not as touchy-feely. They want the facts and figures. They want the features and benefits. And building a relationship to them is not as important. So women buy the same way they want to shop, and that can include cars, insurance, products, services, or even a candidate, because they believe in relationships first. So talk a little bit about what would be an effective strategy, or what are effective strategies for candidates to sell themselves to women? <laughs> Which well, sounds kind of weird. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, women are, you know, they, they have a, a major stand in, in this election. But if we look back at the Republican National Convention, Romney spent a long time reaching out to women. And that was not, that was by design. Mm-hmm. He talked a lot about his family, and it was important to show that he's actually likable. Um, he has to do, you know, a really good job at telling his story. And, you know, they all talk about his stiffness and try to take some of that stiffness away. And despite the fact that he's been around for a while, the country still doesn't know that they, they don't feel that they really know him yet. Obama, on the other hand, has had a love affair with female voters for years. He does a, a better job telling his, <clears throat> telling his story to women because he knows the importance of building relationships, and he sells his ideas, well, to both men and to both women. Romney's more transactional, which is a trait that men favor, and Obama is more relational, hence his lead with female voters. Um, you, you talked about the conventions and, and another um, uh, of part of the conventions was that both of both of the candidates, they both used female speakers a lot. Um, is is that a way to sell to women, to, to kind of use females as a way to connect? Well, that's a great question, because if you, if you saw both Michelle Obama and Ann Romney speak, they both did an excellent job at telling their husband's story. Mrs. Obama talked about the man that we as the public, we don't get to see. And Mrs. Romney talked about their humble beginnings. So from a female perspective, both were relatable, and I wanted to know more. I wanted to hear more of the story, because both women may be able to help female voters connect more with their husbands and build relationships, because remember, for women, mm-hmm. it's all about the relationship. Um, can you talk, why is it important that women, uh, that gender be taken into consideration and women be taken into consideration for this election? Well, I mean, you know, the fact is that... Um, women have a a large presence in this election. And women are responsible for making 85% of all consumer purchasing decisions. So in this election, you know, there's there's different categories that men and women are looking at. They have the same issues, but it's about the priorities. Men focus more on the economy, and women look more into health care and education. In other words, what will affect them and their families directly? But ironically, they'll also have the ability to help the economy with the economic recovery because of their purchasing power and their control of wealth. 
In addition to what women want to hear, they want to, you're saying they want to build this relationship. Is there a more effective means to communicate on that relationship? So uh, do women have different relations, say, to um, commercials or magazine interviews or live speeches? Is, there, is the way they consume, consume the media and consume the advertising in regard to elections, does that affect um, their desire to vote for a certain person? You know, I think that what happens a lot of times is that um, women do react differently to different means of communication. And sometimes it's as simple as going to where they live, where they work. You know, um, women don't always respond well to watching the candidates on TV. So maybe what they need to do is get more into um, the real world. Maybe what both candidates need to do right now over the next seven weeks is to appear in public with the working class female voters, with the moms, with the regular people. Because right now we need candidates to understand what women need and what they want. And the same way that companies and manufacturers and salespeople concentrate on women, so should the candidates. Because again, that, that percentage that women are responsible for making 85% of all consumer purchasing decisions that's huge. So they have to go after the female vote. They have to do that. And, again, appear in public with them. Do something that's more of a natural, um, a natural statement. Don't make, you know, go down to the level of women, of what where they are. Some women will not react well to, you know, the, the upper class, the high class, the, you know, those beautiful photo shoots. They want, they want the candidates to appear at the daycare center or maybe, you know, a, a soup kitchen, or something that's more real, with more real people. And that's what they're looking for. Why is it that women want that more real relationship and, they, and, and a closer connection? What is it, what is it about women that, that makes it that way? Well, if you remember the lessons that we all learned from our moms, you know, people do business with those that they like and those that they trust. So you can't really um, support someone that you don't like and you don't trust. So they have to be, you know, they have to be more relatable. And that's what I think they're trying to do right now is they're trying to become more relatable. They're trying to go down to a different level. And I don't mean down like in class. I mean just mm-hmm. being more real. You know, when Ann Romney talked, talked about their humble beginnings, that made her relatable. When Michelle Obama talked about the fact that her husband is really this wonderful man who has a lot of courage, that made her more relatable. And that's what women are looking for. They're trying to build that relationship, whether it's through the wife or through the husband. And, and that's important to women. We have to build relationships. We need to know the whole story about what we're, you know, what's being told to us. We don't want just the, the beginning and the end. We need the middle as well. How did you get here? What happened to you? you know, because we relate to that. Well, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to uh, come on Exposure and talk with us today. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. All right. That was Judy Hoberman, gender expert, speaker, and author of Selling in a Skirt, talking about why men and women view and vote differently. And, Emmanuel, if you, if you want, I mean, there's a lot of information about the gender differences on the website, which is sellinginaskirt.com, and it goes into this a little bit further, and I know we only have a few minutes, but there's a lot of information that you can pull down to understand the differences and to use them as assets, not liabilities. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure on New York Times.
Times bestselling author Maggie Stiefvater's new book, The Raven Boys, begins with the statement, Blue had forgotten how many times she had been told that she would kill her true love, a prospect most people would be terrified by. But for Blue, surrounded by her oddball psychic family, this has just become a fact about her. Today I'm joined by the author Maggie Stiefvater, and I'd like to say, <laughs> what a burden to put on a 16-year-old girl. <laughs> Well, I don't like to make it easy for my characters. So talk a little bit about this new series. Um, the series is called The the Raven Cycle, um, and your first book is coming out. It's okay. coming out today. <laughs> so, yeah, talk a little bit about this book um, and what, what inspired you to write it. Well, this book is really, it first was inspired because I've always loved Welsh mythology. I read these really big series on Welsh mythology when I was a child. I used to love Susan Cooper's The Darkest Rising series and Lloyd Alexander's The Black Cauldron, and they're all Welsh mythology retold, and Susan Cooper's in particular are set in modern-day times, and that has always appealed to me, and I always wanted to write one of these big fantasy cycles set in Virginia, which is where I live now, and so the real challenge was finding a way to throw them all together. We've got wealth mythology in Virginia, we've got kind of the uh, psychics, um, how did you bring it all together? <laughs> I desperately wanted to have a sleeping Welsh king in Virginia, which is a, it's yeah. somewhat difficult because they are 3,000 miles apart. But So as I was scouring around looking for some mythology to help me, I stumbled across the mythology of ley lines, which are supposed to be supernatural energy lines which connect spiritual places. And I looked at maps, and sure enough, conveniently, there's one that goes very close to Wales and comes very close to Virginia, and it looks like a perfect way to convey a a maybe dead, possibly sleeping Welsh king. <laughs> so it all just worked out perfectly by by coincidence or chance. Um, that's pretty pretty cool. Um, so one of your characters, um, Gansey, he's he's the one who's kind of out on this quest to find this this sleeping king. Uh, talk a little bit about his kind of obsession, or why why is it that he he wants to do this? Well, first of all, um, Gansey is fabul- fabulously rich and extremely bored. So this explains a lot of the things that he does in life. He's actually one of the Raven Boys, which is what Blue calls them. He's a student at the local posh boarding school, Aglenby Academy, so known as Raven Boys because they have a raven on their sweater, and she hates them because they mostly loiter around and are condescending and tie themselves to the interstate signs for their school and things like this. And Gansey, of course, is looking for something to pass his time, and so he's looking for a long-dead Welsh king, but it's because of a an event that happens to him in his childhood that I don't think I want to spoil. Yeah, no spoilers, no spoilers here. Talk a little bit about the the dynamic between the the Raven Boys. So there's three of them, and they're all kind of a little different, and uh, talk about writing those characters and trying to kind of build them off of each other. Well, the first thing that I really wanted to do when I started talking about these Raven Boys and building them up is that I wanted to really write about the ways that money defines us if we will let it define us. And I wanted to talk about how it could or could not be an issue in friendship. So that was the first thing when I started building these boys up together. And then in the background, always playing is my fascination with the King Arthur mythology. And I really wanted to try and build up a modern-day sort of Knights of the Round Table and all of those different clashing personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned a little bit briefly there kind of this idea about money and class, and this is also something that kind of comes into play with the school and, and the town that the school exists in itself, because you have this, rip prep, this kind of prep school with these rich kids, and then the town is not 
kind of wants nothing to do with them. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you decided to explore that dynamic within kind of a of a, a, a fantasy or a paranormal book? Well, it's a very common sort of situation in Virginia, and I've lived in a couple of different places in Virginia, and it was always kind of the same way. I think it might be the Washington, D.C. effect, especially, is that you'll have kind of the people who have been around there forever, and then you'll have new money, and then we have the Virginia kind of royal elite that's always been there, the old money, and it makes a very interesting clash when they all get together and you see Alexis parked in front of a Walmart, and it's just very <laughs> fascinating dynamic, and I always wanted to write about that. Now, Blue, she's a unique character in herself in the fact that she kind of, she's an oddball. She goes kind of against the grain, and she does it on purpose, um, very much so. Um, Why did you write her character that way? She is, in that sense, possibly the most like me in any of my characters that I've built, only because when I was a teen, I was petrified of being ordinary. Unlike (laughs) every other person that I knew who desperately wanted to just go with the flow, I desperately wanted to go against the flow and to stand out. And I feel like Blue is not unusual in that respect. There are a lot of teens out there that just want to be seen, and she represents that. And and you did kind of go against the grain, I guess, as a teenager. I'd say you you do painting, you do music, uh, you graduated early, you've kind of, yeah, made, done done your own thing. Um, can you talk a little bit about all the different kind of experiences you had as a teenager that you kind of tried to use to set yourself apart? Well, I think the, probably the weirdest thing that I did as a teen was I became a competition bagpiper when I was 16, and that pretty much worked to set me apart from almost everybody on the planet. Um Sometimes quite negatively, I was actually told several times to stop practicing in the immediate vicinity, by which they meant anywhere within a mile radius of certain buildings on campus. (laughs) So I'd say that was the strangest thing I did, but I also showed horses and showed dogs and played other strange musical instruments, and I was homeschooled from sixth grade on, so I was very weird. (laughs) But is that something that you're you're kind of proud of? You wear it as, like, I'm, I'm awesome. Yes, I'm very pleased. That's been weird. Good. The 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 way you wrote the book, it's kind of told from multiple perspectives. And most of the time, when I I read a book that's written like that, it I'm totally like, oh, why did they do this? But in this case, um, it was an absolute pleasure to kind of read from those different perspectives. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose um, to to tell the narrative in that manner? I'm really glad that you said that. Actually, I with a story like this, it really gets back to that idea of me loving those epic stories that I've read when I was a kid. And all of them were epic stories, huge stakes, but told on this really intimate personal level. And in order to do that, you really have to get inside a bunch of people's heads and kind of tell tiny stories about how it affects them really, really intimately and personally. And then put them all together to show how it actually adds up to something bigger. And so I was really trying to unify the sort of head hopping. And in addition to uh, writing this new book in these series, you also um, use your other talents. You, you're an artist in the sense of, of visual arts as well as written. And you animate short films and compose music for your each of your books. Can you talk a little bit about why you do that and maybe... Um, Give us a, a little bit of a insight into what how you chose um, your music and your animation for this book. Well, when I was teen and not annoying people by playing the bagpipes outside their window, I also desperately wanted to be a soundtrack composer and an animator.
still actually focus on them. And so, I don't know, it's kind of spoiling myself that I get to go back and play around once every year. I go and take a whole week and set it aside and work on the animation. I set a whole week aside and I work on the music for it. And I really feel like I'm still kind of telling the story. It's just a different way of telling the story. So in my head, as I'm working on finishing the novel, I'm already thinking of how visually I'm going to show it, and I'm already sort of composing the themes for it, too. I mean, it's just difficult for me to pull it apart into three separate things. It still Mm -hmm. feels like the same entity. But with this one, I wanted to try and push myself further than I'd done before, and so I did much more traditional animation, not just stop-motion animation, and I also spent way longer in the studio working on layering it. I always try and make the music and the art reflect my process with the novel, and this is a much more layered and complicated novel than I've done before. Was it, was it more difficult for you to write this novel in general? Or? <laughs> oh my goodness, it took twice <laughs> as long to do it. It was wrangling all the boys that did it, because they're <laughs> interpersonal characters. I mean, their characterization is so interwoven that when I changed something on one boy, it wouldn't just change them. It had to change so much through the rest of the book, too, because they're just such tightly knit group. And, and part of making these videos, you also are you're, you're very active online with your, with your fans and your followers. Can you talk about why that's important to have this connection with your readers, um, and, and using the social media and the internet as a, as a tool to do so. I can't actually remember when I first started blogging because I was an equestrian portrait artist, as a matter of fact, before I was full-time with my writing, and I had a blog back then, and I was very active in the art community, and that was just kind of the way that you managed to sell art if you lived in the middle of nowhere and you didn't have a gallery. You had to be really connected online, and so it When I got my first book contract, I started shifting from art into writing on the blog, and it was just such an invisible kind of transition and so natural that I can't imagine really pulling that out of my day-to-day writing life. It just bleeds into it really well, and I still get ideas from my readers, especially when I meet them on the road. I'm really looking forward to meeting folks in Lansing at my event there, and I often see a lot of people that I meet online at my physical events, and I don't know, it just makes it seem very coherent. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned you are going to be um, in the Lansing area. You're going to be at Schuler's um, on Friday the 28th. That's right, at 5 p.m., and so I'll be reading and talking a little bit, taking questions from the audience, and then signing. All right, well, I'm looking forward to, to reading the rest of the books in the series. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thanks for having me. That was best-selling author Maggie Stiefvater. She is the author of the Shiver Trilogy, Book of Fairy, and her release that is coming out today, The Raven Boys, the first in the Raven Cycle series. And she will also be in East Lansing at Schuler's Bookstore on September 28th. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Blues will run like water into the streets in Old Town this weekend as Old Town's Blues Fest makes its return. Today in studio, though, we welcome Stan Budzinski and Ron Bretz from Stan Budzinski and The Third Degree, who will take the stage at Blues Fest Saturday afternoon. Welcome to Exposure. Hello. Glad to be here. How did you guys come into blues music? Well, we both grew up uh, going to high school in the 60s, Ron and I did, and uh, saw a lot of the bands that were uh, the British and American bands that were using blues-based uh, songs for 
for popular music, and so we just kind of got swept along in the uh, the blues and rock stuff of the day, and, and we pl- picked up guitar and just kind of haven't put it down since. <laughs> so have you guys known each other since high school? Or? No. no? no. I, I moved here in 79 and uh, was introduced to Stan by another musician, our drummer. You, but you went to MSU. Oh, I went to MSU earlier, but I moved back from Detroit in 79. Okay. And uh, met Stan through another musician who he called me and said, this guy Stan needs a bass player. That was <laughs> 1999, I think. We, we've been together a long time. 16, not sick uh, of each other years. yet? Um, sometimes. If we lived together, we would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why play blues? To, to not have the blues. That's The biggest misconception about blues music is that it's sad. Mm-hmm. And generally, I mean, while some songs, yeah, they tell real sad tales, generally you sing the blues because you've got the blues and you want to feel better. And, you know... People do that even without blues music. People sing their favorite songs or listen to their favorite songs to feel better. Blues was invented as a way of just getting those feelings out and feeling better. That's that's my take. And also kind of telling your story. It's just like any sort of song form, you know. It kind of t- tells a basic story. And a lot of the blues kind of started with field chants, you know, where people would do stuff to while away the time, you know, so they wouldn't notice the hard labor and of course you know there there's a long history of of hard labor and blues music but Mm -hmm. uh but it's 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 a it's a joyful uh thing and a good release for a lot of people you know to play music in general but blues in particular i think kind of brings that out of people so you're going to play a couple of songs for us uh in studio today and the first one we have up is titled michigan blues um can you talk a little bit about the inspiration for this song well, I wrote this a few years ago when uh, everything was kind of going downhill with the economy and all the, the problems with the auto industry and all that stuff. And we, uh, we've we actually played in an international blues competition in Memphis a couple times. And the last time we played down there, we wanted to have a new song that was kind of reflective of where we're from. So I wrote this, and then we've kind of added, I've got a new uh, a, a lyric I'm going to de- debut, actually a new uh, uh verse i'm going to debut at the blues festival to kind of update it a little bit um but anyway but we i basically wrote it about the things that have been happening in, in lansing and michigan and, stuff. and and if you listen it'll make you feel better because when he wrote this one of the lyrics is the unemployment is at 14.5 mm-hmm. and it was when he wrote the song it actually wow. got up to 15 there for yeah him. but yeah. that didn't rhyme so we kept it at 14 14.5. and now it's what eight <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I might change it to 8.5 for the festival just so it doesn't depress people <laughs> We'll see. All right, well, let's give it a listen. Artistic license. Okay, here we go. I can't find one at all Unemployment's up to 14.5 Foreclosures rising to an all-time high To fill up your car, you gotta take out a loan Staycations are real, people staying at home It's a Great Lakes State, but what do they do? Pollute all the water, make it a toxic stew Cooperate greed is leading the way. Job leaving for China every day. 
consumption is up, recycling's down. We gotta wake up and turn it around. GM and Ford have been asleep at the wheel. Four car companies just making them squeal. It might be too late for the assembly line. If I see another bailout, I wonder, where's mine? Michigan blues, getting low me in time. I got the Michigan blues, don't need no welfare line. I got the Michigan blues, baby, something's not right. The last one who better turn on the light. Tuning in, you are listening to Impact Exposure. That was Michigan Blues, Stan Budzinski, along with Ron Bretz here from Stan Budzinski and the Third Degree in studio today. Uh, thank you. That was lovely. First yeah, of all. thanks. <laughs> that, that song, there was a lot of very kind of personal lyrics, um, and it, it seems like it's kind of a song that you said you, you're adding another verse yeah. for Old Town. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, uh, the way that songs shift um, in blues? Um, I well, I think sometimes people just have other experiences that relate to that song, and so they add another verse or possibly change a couple of the words just to make it a little more relevant to themselves and maybe to the audience too. But for me, I'm kind of I'm putting a verse in about Byram and Brown and the vagina rally down at the state capitol, <laughs> nice. which I went to with my girlfriend, and it was uh, it was quite a quite an event. And um, so I'm I'm getting this this a whole thing about you know. It's a little political, so I won't go into it. You know, but, anyway. Right. Well, but anyway, yeah, I think I, I it'll be pretty good. At, it'll be a good addition to the whole thing. I hope the people at Blues Fest enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so, too. Yeah, yeah. 
So, do you have you guys been doing a lot of touring lately, or mostly well, locally? We, uh, you know, we we have strong ties in the community, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we play at various places like the Green Door and the Firm downtown. We've started to play at. We've played at the Exchange, Moriarty's. Um, just about. Mm-hmm. What's great about Lansing area mm-hmm. is the number of clubs that have still have live music. It's it's getting smaller. Um, but, you know, we love live music. People like Stan and I, that's what we grew up listening to. And if I walk into a, a, a bar and there's a DJ, mm-hmm. I walk back out. <laughs> Nothing against the day. They guys got to earn their living, too. But I want to hear live music. Yeah. Yeah. And we've been, we've been lucky we, because we're not trying to tour nationally. We're not trying to, to break big. We just want to play our music and, and have people listen to it. And with the internet now, we can kind of promote on there. And if, if people find us from, you know, I've I've have some friends in Japan and some other places that keep in contact. And um, you can you find know. us on Facebook, Stan yeah, Budzinski are. and Third Degree Dot on Facebook. Yep, and and we we are going to try and get a new studio uh, album together too. And I'm I'm the full time musician in the band, so I'm I'm I do some solo stuff too. So I may do some traveling, but I like playing with these guys. And if I'm around here, I'll continue to keep playing with them i think for mm-hmm. a few more years for anyway. just, yeah. just a few more years <laughs> we'll see how many um you guys want to play another tune for us yeah well, you know and, and we're going to play one of a song that i recently wrote and uh, it, it's funny one of the reasons we don't uh have a studio cd is that we generally don't have the time to spend in the studio stan does but the reason we don't is we have day jobs and you know there's the there's the bumper sticker that says real musicians have day jobs uh and so i decided <laughs> to write a song about that a one, two, one, two, three, four. Well, I told my baby wanna play the blues. She said, "Honey, I got some news. Don't quit your day job. We gotta pay the rent. You know you gotta keep on working." Cause their money's all been spent So I joined a band Those cats played real cool But they said to me Don't you be no fool Don't quit your your day day job You gotta pay the rent You know you gotta keep on working Cause their money's all been spent gig at the local bar the end of the night the money don't go too far can't quit my day job i gotta pay the rent i guess i'm gonna keep working nine to five cause that money's all been spent oh don't quit your day job gotta bring home some bucks Quit your day job, even though it sucks. I said you gotta pay the rent. The money's all been spent. Don't quit your day job. 
You're listening to Impact Exposure. That was Stan Budzinski along with Ron Bretz uh, from the Stan Budzinski and Third Degree. And that last song, Don't Quit Your Day Job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and about Blues Fest, you got to tell people that if they've never come out to the Old Town Blues Fest, this is the ninth, tenth year, something yeah, like that. Yeah, something like that. And, and it it's is, all ages. It, yeah, all, anybody can come. It's, it's wide open. It is just great fun. Great, great fun, Start. and an amazing number of people do come out for this, particularly if the weather's nice. So that, that last track was called Don't Quit Your Day Job. Would you, you have a day job? I do have a day Would job. Would you ever quit your day job? Today? Oh, no, no. And, and here's the funny part. I sing about how, you know, your day job might suck, but I have a great day job. So well, I'm I'm not complaining about it at all. Uh, but uh, that's why music has always been secondary, you know. And I love it. I'd rather do mm-hmm. this, but... I pay the rent with the other job. (laughs) And then Stan just makes it work. I'm trying to get him to adopt me, but uh, so far it hasn't worked. Well, I teach at Cooley Law School. Okay. And and it's it's just another passion for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Want to play us one more track to take us out? Sure. Sure. Um, This is uh, another one I wrote uh, after I grew up in the city of Detroit and lived in a in a city street with sewers and sidewalks and pavement. And, uh, and then I decided I wanted to get back to the land and live out in the, in the country. And I didn't really like it very much. So I wrote a song <laughs> called Living in the Country Blues. All right. I believe you're going to start this one, Stan. Yep. Okay. Ready? Yep. Got holes in my pockets. I got mud on my shoe I got bats in the attic I got living in the country blues Stan Budzinski in the third degree. They're going to be at Old Town Blues Fest this weekend. You can find out more about Blues Fest at www.oldtownbluesfest.com But I guess I've had some fun in them living in the country blues. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Sai Sai has been on Ellen DeGeneres lately, uh, teaching Britney Spears how to dance, made appearances on NBC Today show, as well as recently uh, appearing on SNL. He's a hit on YouTube, as well as with iTunes sales. Sai is certainly making his name for himself on a global scale, but the question is, why? Of all the Korean musical stars who've made countless attempts to break into the American market, why is it that this rapper has had so much success? Today we welcome the Impact's own K-pop expert, Elise, host of The Asian Invasion. Welcome to Exposure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, a different show for you tonight. Yeah, definitely a different format, but I'm excited to be here. All right. So first of all, um, yeah, when you look at most Korean pop artists, um, you've got people like uh, Girls' Generation, Super Junior, 
So why is it that Psy is the one who's managed to make this crossover? Honestly, I'm curious, too. Like, um, Danny, my co-host, and I, we've talked about it pretty much every week since this blew up. And we're still like, why is this the one song to break into the world market? I mean, yeah, like Girls' Generation and Super Junior, they've had a lot of success, a lot of success in Asia. Um, and they have tried to break into the American market, specifically Girls' Generation. They were on the Dave Letterman show, the Today Show. But for some reason, it, they just didn't catch on. Um, one of my theories is that Asai has actually been, he's been a musician for a while. He's been around for a while. He's kind of old, especially for K-pop standards. But he's also been producing behind the scenes a lot, which most people don't know. So he does have a really good sense for what makes a good pop song. He's produced some mega hits um, for other K-pop artists. And I think that that sense of knowing what's going to sound good, combined with like this almost like a perfect storm of like this crazy this crazy video that is just so weird. I yeah, think. let's let's talk about <laughs> this video. Um, so he he's got I don't know. <laughs> there's just so many different scenes: the dancing, horses sleeping, there's pools. I don't even know. Um, is that a typical K-pop video? Or? <laughs> to be 100% honest, that's totally very normal. I mean, K-pop videos are really weird. Mu- usually much weirder than that. Like, someone has amnesia, someone has cancer, someone meets up with, like, a, their long-lost brother from the past. Like, crazy things are always happening. So, as far as K-pop videos goes, this actually makes a lot of sense in the, in the fact that it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, Gangnam is a district in Seoul that's historically been, like, kind of, like, the ritzier, glamorous, rich district. And so... I think he was trying to make fun of the superficialism and the commercialism because Korea, you know, as far back as the, or early back as the 80s, North Korea was doing better than South Korea. Um, it wasn't until the past 20, 30 years that they exploded and became one of the best economies in the world. And so you have like this really huge change in society really quickly. And so a lot of people think, oh, Korean society is very superficial. It's a lot about appearances. And so I think Sai is trying to make a comment about that. But that wasn't really the message that was conveyed to the rest of the world. They just saw this goofy Asian guy dancing. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it definitely has a good dance beat. It's really catchy. It's a really catchy song. It's hard to get out of your head. (laughs) Even if you don't like the song, it's not going to leave your head. And, you know, so. Do you think that Psy's presence in America is going to open the door for more K-pop stars? Um, Is this kind of a, a, is this going to be the first of the flood of K-pop stars into America? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely... Uh, small pockets of people that are have been, you know, fans of J-pop and K-pop for maybe the past 10 or 20 years. But with this having such mainstream success, I mean, it's the number one song on iTunes, outbeating like Taylor Swift, Kanye West. That's mm-hmm. huge to me. Um, so, yeah, my hope is that this is going to open a lot of doors globally and especially in America because America is where K-pop stars it's the biggest market. They mm-hmm. want to be popular in America. Um, so I think this is going to open up a lot of doors. Like, Sai has been signed to Island Records. He's working with Justin Bieber's management. That's the way to go. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think it's going to be a big deal. Like, even though Girls' Generation actually did sign with Island Records uh, maybe a year or two ago, you haven't seen them at all in America, right? Sai, mm-hmm. within, like, a few weeks of this video coming out, he's getting love calls from all these management companies in America, and he immediately came over. You know, he was on the Ellen DeGeneres show, SNL. So I think this is going to open up doors for K-pop in mainstream American popular culture. So I'm really excited about that. Do you think part of the reason why it's also successful is kind of his persona and personality? Um, can you talk a little bit about how, yeah, what what is he like? What's his, uh, I know he's, he, he's kind of notorious for not trying to avoid military service, which is mandatory in Korea. Yeah. Um, he's been arrested a couple times and 
it just kind of seems to be like an overall funny kind of happy-go-lucky guy. Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that. He's almost like the anti-K-pop star because he's old. You know, they start <laughs> yeah. him young. They start trading him when they're like 10, 12 years old. They'll debut at like 16 and be working like these really crazy schedules. He's old for one thing that's kind of rare in K-pop. Mm-hmm. Um especially really modern K-pop. And yeah, he tried to avoid the military service, which every Korean man has to do for two years before he turns 30. MC Mong, he's a famous rapper, he tried to do that, and he basically got caught up in this huge controversy, and his career is basically over. And Sai survived. Sai survived, and he's thriving. He actually had a scandal maybe six years ago um, because he was caught smoking marijuana, and usually that will just, like, you know, that's a huge deal, especially in a conservative culture like Korea. You know, that stuff's not going to fly. So the fact that he has done these things that would normally just end someone's career in this, like, society, and the fact that he's thriving and now he's something for Koreans to be proud of, or, I guess, depending on your opinion of... <laughs> I, I would say it's something cool in that sense. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of funny because there's there are K-pop artists actively trying to break into the American market. The Wonder Girls, they play shows in America. They had a uh, TV series on Teen Nick. But, you know, they're not being played on radio and yet, Psy, just kind of by chance, I guess, or just to have, um, it's almost like luck that he got this popularity and it. it was kind of like a snowballing effect and it just got huge. Is there any chance, is this, is this a one hit, one time happenstance that, you know, it's amusing now because it's this guy doing silly stuff in his video or do you think that Psy's gonna, he's gonna make it work here? That's a really good question and that's something I've been wondering too because um, on the one hand, yeah, it could totally just be another viral thing and just blow over and everyone will forget about it in six months or it could really open a lot of doors um because there's never been a korean artist that's had this kind of mainstream success number one on itunes um the most liked video on youtube like 212 million views currently on youtube right now it's just crazy it blows my mind actually um so i think he's gone i my hope is that he's actually has broken into the american market and we'll see more of him i think we're definitely going to see more of him in america just because Americans seem to be so in love with him. Very, it's very something about right his, now. yeah, <laughs> something about his personality. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping for this not to just be a viral thing and blow over. I think um, because of the environment right now, and more people are listening to K-pop all around the world, and including here in America, even though it's more of an underground thing. I think that. Yeah, I think that he can start kind of like a movement almost. I mean, you've been like 21, um, they're a really popular Korean girl band. They were voted by MTV Iggy as the best band in the world in 2011. They went to Pitchfork Studios and, you know, did an interview with them when they were touring here in America this year. So so for, for those people who haven't quite gotten into K-pop and are like, this is kind of good, I want to I wanna listen to that, uh, what is, as the host of uh, our, our show that plays K-pop and J-pop, um, what are some recommendations? Ooh, good question. Um, I'm a huge fan of K-pop, and I mean, K-pop. There's so many different kinds. Like, there's hip hop, there's straight bubblegum pop, there's R&B, there are ballads. Um, I think Big Bang is a good group. Um, they're really popular in Asia, and actually, G Dragon, um, one of the members, he is on one of Psy's songs on this album that Kangnam Style's on. They're just a fun like guy group they have fun party dance songs and um if you like the more bubblegum pop girls generation is really good they're a lot of fun 
There's there's just a lot of emerging there's a whole, K-pop artists. There's a whole I mean, other world out there that we just don't oh, know Oh, yeah, about definitely. <laughs> and I'd recommend, you know, of course, listening to our show. Danny and I play a lot of new J-pop and K-pop. And you can hear at least that is on Monday nights uh, from 8 to 10, 8 to 10 p.m. PM, the Asian Invasion. Well, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to come. Thanks for having me. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 89FM.